Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Jonathan Mikesell. Jesus is greater. Welcome to Advent 2020. Today is the first Sunday in this season of preparation, this time each year when we prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives to celebrate the coming of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, God in human form, come and be, to become one of us. It's a wonderful time to recognize that there are many things that are wrong with our world, that Jesus came to set our world right, to bring hope where it seems hopeless, to bring new life where it doesn't seem possible, to help set right the challenges and the wrongs of the world in which we live. And if ever there was a year where we need that reminder or where we can readily recognize the importance of that reminder, this is certainly it. I don't need to go back and replay for you all the things this year that we recognized needed the help and the intervention of God. Not the least of which in all of that list is our own relationship with God. Our own closeness and nearness to the God who loves us more than we can begin to imagine. Advent is that time of year when we evaluate our relationship with God. We examine it. We we ask those questions. Am I growing? Am I further away from God? where, Where do things stand with God? And we do that not to torment ourselves, not to set ourselves up to feel guilty, Instead, we do it to gain a greater sense of the greatness of God, of the love of God, of the mercy of God, of the ways in which we can see and recognize God's hand at work in our lives this year. Now, to help us gain that perspective this particular year, our Advent sermon series is going to focus on the ways in which Jesus is greater than some of the circumstances and situations of our lives. So, for example, doubts, can dominate our lives, can seem to be bigger than Jesus, but, but Jesus is greater than our doubts. Fears can seem to overwhelm us. They can seem to overcome us in the worst kinds of ways. But Jesus is greater than our fears. Our plans and our personal pursuits can seem to consume all of our attention. But Jesus is greater In all of these and many other ways, Jesus is greater. And the more that we can understand and recognize and reflect upon the greatness of Jesus, the more we're going to be able to recognize the love of Jesus, the forgiveness, the hope, the reconciliation, the restoration, and all of these wonderful things that are available because of the coming of Jesus into our world. And so in a year of COVID-19, of political division, of all sorts of other interruptions and disruptions, it's marvelous to know that Jesus is greater than all of these things. Regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of how things appear, Jesus is greater. Today we begin that focus on the greatness of Jesus by focusing in an area that may seem a bit strange. And that is that Jesus is greater than even our religion. John the Baptist had the task of preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. 
He was the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And in doing so, he helped the people of his day and he helps the people of our day learn that Jesus is greater than all of our religious activity. Now that sounds strange because we can easily think that life is all about religion, about doing these acts of contrition, acts of whatever we might see them as, acts of duty toward God. It can seem like all of these, this activity that we do, these things that we bring to God can, can lead us to the path to finding God. Here's the thing. Jesus came with another view in mind. His gift is forgiveness. His gift is relationship with God, not through what we can do for God, not through our religious pursuits, but through what God has done for us, the relationship that God opens to each one of us. So as we recognize, as we reflect on the words that we hear about John's ministry, we're going to recognize that Jesus is greater than our religion. You heard the passage from Luke chapter 3 a bit earlier. And in it, we recognized that the time had arrived. The Messiah's ministry was about to publicly begin. And to mark this occasion, in accordance with the words of the prophet Isaiah, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, this isn't the first that we've heard about John in the gospel accounts. John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were relatives. And during their pregnancy, they had met up and gathered together and shared time together. No doubt recounting and wondering aloud how it was that God was willing to use such simple individuals as they. At this point, that had been years earlier. Now it was time to make known the coming of the Messiah. John would be the mouthpiece used by God to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. And as Luke recounts what, what happened there, he says that John would do so by traveling throughout the region around the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was going to prepare the way by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. At the core of John's message to the people of his day was a, a problem of that generation that continues into our generation. And that problem is summed up with three simple letters. S-I-N. Sin. At its root, sin is disobedience of God. It's thinking that my way is better than God's way. It's going against the will and the plan of God. Now, when I say it like that, most of us would agree that it's not a great idea to go against God's will and God's plan. I mean, after all, it is, he is God, right? I mean, when you say it like that, we should all obey and do what God wants us to do. We also know that the reality of our lives is that it's often not quite that simple. We know it in our heads. We can say it as we gather in worship, either online or in person. But when it's the opportunity comes to expense, to fudge that expense report, then it's a little easier to say, what difference does it really make? We, we know we shouldn't get mad at our kids, but did you hear what they said to me? Did you see what they did to our home? I shouldn't get mad. We know we shouldn't gossip about the behavior of our neighbor, but she's just so wrong. 
In these and so many other ways, we sin against God and we sin against others throughout our lives. And while we might think that these behaviors and these attitudes don't have a great impact, don't have a great effect, I mean, some do, but many of them, eh, I don't know. We know from the trauma of broken lives, from the trauma of broken relationships, from the ways in which harm is done all around us every day, we know that sin has a real impact on the world around us. And even more than that, our sinful acts show that we are sinful people at heart. We are broken and sinful, and that breaks our relationship with God, creates a gap in our relationship with God. We can wonder what can be done. John recognized that problem. He recognized the problem of the people around him. And John's answer to that issue, to that question, was a call to repentance. Preparation for the coming of the Messiah meant repenting of sin. Now, to repent is actually to recognize the error of your ways and then to turn in a different direction. John's task was to help the people to begin to recognize that the path on which they were traveling was leading them further into sin. It was leading them further away from God. They were going the wrong way, and God was calling them in a new direction. Stop the direction in which you're going and turn in a new way. We know from what happens later in Jesus' life, we're not quite sure whether John fully comprehended this at that time, but we knew, know from the rest of the gospel accounts that Jesus' way of interacting would not just stop with repentance. Jesus' way of interacting would provide a means of forgiveness, a means of setting right this wrong, because he would go and die on a cross for the sins of the people that were there and for our sins. And he would rise again, forever defeating the power of sin and death and hell. And by doing so, he would make possible a relationship with God for us, for you, for me, for the people all around us. That was different from the plans of the people around John. And that was different from many of our plans as well. God's ways are simple. God's desire is forgiveness and restoration. God's in inclination is toward relationship and what he can do for us. But unfortunately, so many times when we have these sorts of conversations, when we start to think about this broken relationship with God and how it might possibly be restored, so often, instead of recognizing this gift of God, this gift of relationship, this gift that God offers to us, so many times we turn to what we can try to do for God, what we can try to do in our acts of goodness. With such a simple and beautiful view of God's plan of repentance leading to forgiveness of sins, John's words in verse 7 seem very, very strange to us. You see, crowds had people were gathering. They were responding to his message, his call to come and be baptized and to, re and to repent. Groups were coming. Seemingly all things were good. But John's words at that point are startling to us. Instead of patting them on the heads, he said, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warns you? Uh, John, isn't that what your whole message is about? Wasn't the entire message that you proclaimed a warning to them? Didn't you want these crowds to escape the wrath of God by receiving forgiveness? What are you talking about, John? Well, somehow John knew the, the impact of true repentance. 
He knew that lives could be changed. But he also knew that too many people in his audience, they hadn't exhibited true repentance. If they were sorry for their sin, they would have turned in the other direction. Not to earn their way to God, but as a reflection of what God was doing in their lives. Why were they continuing to live just as they had done before? And so John said, you brood of vipers, because apparently they hadn't really repented. They hadn't really recognized that it was only God who could bring restoration and forgiveness to their lives. Now, there are at least two possible reasons that we see outlined in this passage about why it was that they had this misunderstanding of what true repentance was about. On the one hand, the people may have been engaging in mere religious acts. They thought that by going through the motions of being baptized— just their religiosity of doing that, they could be in right standing with God. They weren't really interested, perhaps, in addressing their sin. They didn't really want to change. They simply wanted to be viewed right by God. To those, John said, you brood of vipers. Do we ever go through the motions of religiosity, thinking that by looking good on the outside, we'll That'll suffice to God? Are we more interested in our external religious acts than a right relationship with God? We can fall into this trap that the hearers of John fell into. Some were apparently trying to earn their way to God, doing just enough on the outside to convince God to let them in. Others seemed to not even have gone that far. They pointed to their lineage as their passport to God's kingdom. We have Abraham as our ancestor— doesn't matter how we respond to God. We're good based on our connection to God through Abraham. Being a good Jew is enough. We don't need anything else. In that day, what they were to do for God was also clear as a follower of the Jewish faith. Centuries earlier, God had established a relationship with the Jewish people. The system by which they were to relate to God was evident. Rules were establishing, established requiring, prohibiting certain behavior and certain conduct. And when those rules were broken, and they were definitely broken, another series of rituals were enacted whereby sacrifices were offered, the wrongs were covered, and God was seemingly appeased. There was a lot of religious observances. What you did good for God made God happy and set you in the right direction. And what you did wrong to or for God made God upset and set you in the wrong direction. The religious system was established. The people thought they knew how to live and to act. John was breaking into that and saying, no, 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 you brood of vipers, that's not right. It's not about your religiosity. It's not what you can bring to God. And again, sometimes we can fall into that same trap as well. Some of us point to our parents or our grandparents, their faith is our ticket to God. Isn't their faith enough? Some point to our religious affiliation. Isn't being just a good Presbyterian enough? Like the people of John's day, we too can miss the point. Here's the thing. God wants to have a relationship with each one of us. The law and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and many facets of our religious life today, they have their place. They are means to an end. They are, they are beneficial to our lives. But too often, those items which are intended to point us to a right relationship with God, too often, instead of pointing us to that relationship, they become ends in and of themselves. 
They become places where we push our devotion into those actions and activities and ways that we think we're earning our way to God. And it misses the whole point. God loves you so much that he came to this earth to demonstrate that love. He invites each one of us into that kind of a relationship with him. It's not something that we can earn. It's something we are invited to receive, to repent, to recognize our waywardness, our sinfulness, to turn toward God and to receive this gift from God. It's very interesting how very often people of John's day and people of our day try to get ourselves to God. We try all sorts of human efforts to get ourselves to God. We try to to make our way back to God. But here's the thing. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. It's a word we don't like to hear. Because we recognize that once imperfection is achieved, it's impossible to get it back. Once we mar what is perfect, there's no way to get back to that original intent. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. There's no way for us to earn our way back to God. No matter how many religious acts we go through, no matter what we think we're doing to to earn God's favor, we can't get there. That isn't the end of the story. Repentance through faith in Jesus Christ, through recognizing that our actions come up short and that we need God to do for us what we and our religion cannot do for ourselves, we can find forgiveness and new life in Christ. God is waiting with open arms, welcoming us to himself. Because God is interested in relationship. And Jesus is greater than mere religion. While the people thought they had it all figured out, John came with a very different message. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament couldn't get the people back to God because ultimately it only highlighted their sin and their waywardness. The Old Testament law made perfectly clear that the sin and the mistakes the people were making. But it didn't provide the ultimate means of escape from that sin and right relationship with God. But Jesus was coming to make possible a forgiveness that the law couldn't achieve. It wasn't possible, in fact, in any other form. He came to pay the penalty for the wrongs that we have all committed against God, to become the access point by which we could receive this gift of hope and forgiveness. Jesus came into this world and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And in so doing, he demonstrated that Jesus is greater than religion. That's not quite the end of the story of John's account here, is it? John then helps his listeners to reflect on their lives, and Jesus helps us to reflect that righteousness as well. You see, John goes on then to talk about how these acts of repentance should be viewed and should reflect a change in heart. And where we often, where our religiosity often gets us wrong in this case, is that often we get the, the, the order of those things reversed. Instead of recognizing that Jesus invites us to receive forgiveness, that having received that forgiveness, he begins to change our hearts and our motivations and our priorities and allows us to live out this changed life in ways that weren't possible in any other way in our own strength. Instead of seeing it in that kind of order, religion says you need to get yourself right to God and then God will accept you. 
You need to start doing the right things, and then God will receive you into his kingdom. That's not what this is about. It's not about religious activity. It's not about earning our way to God. It's not doing enough good things to make God accept us. Say, Jesus is greater. Jesus comes offering us hope, forgiveness, new life. Not because of what we can do for God, because of what God in love has done for us. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, have you recognized that Jesus is greater than your religious activity? That Jesus is greater than all of your greatest efforts to try to make yourself right before God? Instead, he saw how futile that was. And in love came to you and to me, offering us the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, and the gift of a changed heart right in this world, where he changes us from the inside out, guiding and molding and helping our motivations to be in line with God's plan and God's truth. On this first Sunday of Advent, as we reflect on this gift of God in Jesus Christ, we receive this gift that God's opening to us, that he's inviting us to receive. May we recognize that Jesus is greater 